Well, I invite you, if you will, to open your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 18, and we will be looking specifically today at verses 1 through 8, along with some selected texts in a message that I have entitled, Conviction and Compromise Lessons from an Ancient King. So I will begin reading in 2 Kings 18, looking at verses 1 through 8. Now it came about in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Zabai, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke into pieces the bronze servant that Moses had made, for until those days the sons of Israel burned incense to it, and it was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. For he clung to the Lord, he did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments which the Lord had commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him, and wherever he went, he prospered. And he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. He defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory, from watchtower to fortified city. Well, Father, we come before you today. We thank you for the counsel, the instruction of your word. And Lord, we have great assurance that your word does not return void. So I pray that you would prepare the hearts of your people today to receive your counsel. And Lord, that you might change us through what we hear, that you might instruct us. And Lord, that through it, we could worship you more intimately and bring you glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Winston Churchill once said, success is not final and failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. And as believers, we should well understand that it takes courage to stand for Christ and to uphold and live out the truth of his word. In fact, it is not easy for a Christian to live as a redeemed sinner in a sin-cursed world. Amen? And in the ebb and flow of daily life, we have all succeeded at many things, and we have all failed at many things as well. And I doubt there is a mature believer in this sanctuary who hasn't experienced the blessings that come when you stand upon biblical convictions, as well as the pain of regret when you fall into compromise. Yet we should know that it is in the crucible of both of our successes and failures that our true character comes to light. And I want you to think of the great strength and character exemplified by so many in the Bible. Think, for example, of Noah. Noah lived in a completely corrupted world. He obeyed God and built an ark. And he stood alone in doing what was right, even though his neighbors thought he was crazy. Abraham was told by God to leave his home and go to another land that he knew nothing about. Yet he trusted God and marched off into uncertainty. David, we know, Israel's greatest king as a young boy, had the courage of a lion, and he went up against Goliath, the giant of the Philistines, and he felled him with one stone. Yet, as Alistair Begg once said in a recent quote, the best of men are men at best. And we know that even the best of men can easily fall into compromise. Noah, for example, had a propensity for drunkenness, and one day as he was lying naked in his tent, his son Ham saw him uncovered. When Noah awoke, he cursed his son, saying that Canaan would be cursed and be a servant to his brothers. And Ham, of course, was the father of Canaan. Abraham soon found himself in Egypt and feared for his life if he let on that Sarah was his wife. So he lied to Pharaoh and said she was his sister. I'd be on the couch for 10 years if I ever did that. David is our poster child for epic moral failure. He had an illicit relationship with Bathsheba, got her pregnant, had her husband Uriah killed, and became the perfect Old Testament model for what a dysfunctional family really looks like. So isn't it true that the best of men are men at best? But for us, however, I think there are lessons to be learned, both through the solid convictions and the compromises suffered by those who have gone before us. And I say that because in both of these instances, character is really revealed. And through the legacies that are left to us in Scripture, we learn how to strengthen our convictions and how to avoid the pitfalls of compromise. So this morning, we're going to look into the life of one of Judah's greatest kings, King Hezekiah. 
And I think Hezekiah was a king who exemplified great conviction and at times a king who fell into sinful compromise. And yet through it all, beloved, he had the courage to continue to serve the Lord with all of his heart. So what are we going to do this morning? This morning we're going to look at two character traits of Hezekiah's life. And I'm hoping that as we look at these two character traits, we can see the many lessons that were given. On number one, how we can stay strong in our convictions. And number two, how we can stay uncompromising in our walk with Christ. Now, as I said, our main text here is verses 1 through 8, but the full account of Hezekiah is found in 2 Kings 18 all the way through chapter 20. It's also found in 2 Chronicles 28, 27 through 2 Chronicles 32. And we also see a great account, especially of Hezekiah's prayer in Isaiah 36 through Isaiah 39, verse 8. Hezekiah is also mentioned in Proverbs 25, 1. And in the genealogical record of Matthew, found in Matthew chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. So let's begin, first of all, by setting the background, the context for our passage, so we kind of get an idea of where we're at here. After the reign of Solomon, you may remember that a civil war erupted and ultimately split Israel in what was referred to as the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And we know that Each kingdom had their own kings. The northern kingdoms had predominantly wicked kings, and they quickly fell into idolatry. As punishment, we're told in Scripture, in 722 B.C., God allowed the Assyrians to conquer Israel and its king, Hoshea, who had reigned at that point for seven years. And we're told in verse 12, in 2 Kings, verse 18, 12, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant, even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, they would neither listen or do it. So they were conquered, but by this time now, the Assyrian Empire was also threatening the security of Judah as well. And we know that at this time, Judah was surrounded by very strong world empires, There was Egypt to the south, the Assyrians and Babylonians to the north. And it was during this turbulent time that Hezekiah was installed as king, the 13th king of Judah. But Judah was not much better off than Israel. They were in a political and financial and immoral mess. Now, it's not hard to understand why that is. Hezekiah's father was King Ahaz, and he was an evil king who brought much trouble upon Judah He was a king that refused the advice of the prophets. He relied upon agreements with other nations to keep the country safe instead of depending on the Lord. He made a treaty with Assyria to protect Judah from the northern kingdom of Israel and from Syria. And when he did that, it cost the nation a lot of its wealth. And they wound up having to pay tribute money for over a century. It was all in vain anyway because Assyria, we know, eventually turned on Judah and attacked it anyway. But even worse, King Ahaz was an idolater. He placed an Assyrian altar in the temple in Jerusalem. He used the temple altar for divination purposes. And he closed the temple and the sanctuary for regular worship to God. Despite being warned by the prophet Isaiah, he continued in his wickedness until his death in 716 B.C., And it was in this same year that Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, became king of Judah. And we now pick up the particulars of that in 2 Kings 18, verses 1 and 2. So notice what we read. Now it came about in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Abai, the daughter of Zechariah. So Hezekiah's story here starts with the usual details of time and place and family history. And we're told in Hoshea's third year as king of Israel that Hezekiah took the throne. And this would have been four years before the fall of the northern kingdom, Israel. Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became king. He reigned for 29 years. And I'm considering that when I look at what he was facing at his age, it must have looked like an impossible situation to correct. 
His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of the high priest Zechariah. And I want you to think about this. Here is the daughter of the high priest married to Ahaz. Do you think they needed biblical counseling? That must have been an interesting marriage. But considering the wickedness of his father, it's almost certain that Hezekiah pursued godliness because of the influence of his mother. Now, think about Hezekiah for a minute. Given his background, you would not expect much from a king. And I say that because evil usually begets evil. Amen? When was the last time you saw a godly ruler in North Korea? Right? I mean, when you look at so many of these oppressive nations, you see evil after evil after evil. And this was a time, remember, when Judah was immersed in gross idolatry and immorality. And you would think that it would have been easy for Hezekiah just to kind of pick up the reign of his father. But little did those in Judah know that they were about to get the king they needed rather than the king they expected or deserved. So as we come now to verses 3 through 8, we see the first character trait of King Hezekiah. And the first thing we note is his courageous convictions. His courageous convictions. And I want you to look at verses 3 through the beginning of verse 4. It says, He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. And he removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. Now what we notice here is that Hezekiah absolutely did not take after his father Ahaz, but after his father David. And this is really incredible high praise for this king. Notice in verse 3 it says that he did right in the sight of the Lord. So Hezekiah's godly character is cemented here, beloved, right from the start. That he was following in the footsteps of King David. And this was a man who brought absolute radical reform to the nation. Now what is interesting about this is that there are no qualifications attached to Hezekiah's commendation here. And yet we see a lot of similarities between Hezekiah and King David. For example, Scripture records that for both men that God was with them. Scripture says that both of them were prospered by God, and this is particularly in war, and that both were successful in subduing the Philistines. And so we see there is a parallel account between them. But there was something else that set Hezekiah apart from all the other kings. Because you see, while all the other kings were commended for doing great things, there was always a but or a yet that followed the commendation. Not so, however, with Hezekiah. Because you see, Hezekiah did the one thing that nearly all of his predecessors were criticized for not doing, and that is, he got rid of all the idols for the centuries that his people had been led astray. He cleaned house totally. None of the other kings completely destroyed the high places, nor did they completely remove idolatry, even some of the good kings of Judah. So we see that Hezekiah became king, and he literally went on a righteous rampage. He was courageous in his convictions. He started cleaning house both externally and internally. We're told first that he removed the high places, and these high places were the altars in the hills and the mountains where sacrifices would be offered to pagan gods. He broke down the sacred pillars. These pillars were wooden idols that were used in the worship of Baal. We're told then that Hezekiah cut down the Asherah. The Asherah were these carved wooden poles that represented female deities. So you can see that the nation was rift with paganism. And both the Asherah poles and the high places were really remnants of the Canaanite religion that had never been purged. The Jewish people had failed to completely remove these when they first arrived in the land. Now I think it's worth stopping here to pause for a moment because I want you to think about how do you think the Israelites reacted when Hezekiah came in and immediately started swinging this spiritual axe. How do you think that went over? Now I'm sure there were some that were overjoyed. I'm sure there were some Israelites that were, hallelujah, reform, it's finally here. Hezekiah is destroying everything that's evil, everything that's diabolical, everything that's profane. I am sure Hezekiah had an amen corner. Amen? amen. Those that got together that wanted to ride down the streets, hooray, we got Hezekiah. 
I'm sure there was some frenzy over the reform, but I have no doubt that Hezekiah's radical actions produced everything from mild resentment in some to radical resistance in others. We would be foolish indeed to think that all the Israelites thought this was great. And I'm sure he got a lot of resistance. And, and as I read this account, beloved, I have come to so appreciate the courage of Hezekiah. I am sure he got a lot of papyrus hate mail, aren't you? And you know, as a pastor, I can relate to Hezekiah on a smaller scale. When I was pastoring our first church in Kinderhook, Michigan, when I walked into the sanctuary, there was a huge picture of the Last Supper painted by Leonardo da Vinci. And it was kind of disturbing to me, and it just, so one day during the week, I took the picture down and I quietly put it in the corner, and when I walked in Sunday morning to preach, there it was up on the wall. So I walked in the next week and I took the picture down and put it in the corner and guess what? Next Sunday, walk into church and there it is, stuck right on the wall. The third week I took it down and I hid it. And I didn't confess to anybody it was me and it never went back up there. So, But I did get myself in trouble on two other occasions. I made the mistake of getting rid of some old chairs in the basement of the church, probably from the Civil War, who knows? And one of the older gentlemen in the church came in and just reamed me up one side and down the others and told me how important these chairs were. They were rotted. They were full of cobwebs. Nobody had sat in them for centuries, but they were important. And then if that wasn't enough, two weeks into my ministry, I was told that we were having a Sunday school convention with other churches, small churches that were getting together. And I was told that our church was going to be the host church and that the pastor was a woman who would come and preach in our pulpit. And I thought, oh, this is just perfect. So I told Gail, well, this will be the shortest ministry I've ever had. So I sat down with my elders and I said, you know, guys, this is not going to fly and we cannot be doing this. And I sat down and went through scripture with them. And by God's grace, they were behind me 100%. They, were, they backed me. And I thought the matter was over until I read the newspaper the next day. And my name was splashed right across the front page about what a hateful person I was to shut down the Sunday school convention. Now that's nothing compared to what Hezekiah did, but listen, it takes courage to stand for truth. It takes courage to do what's right. Amen? Amen. And we have to be having the courage at times to be able to stand alone in our convictions. And Hezekiah trusted the Lord. He was unwilling to compromise and he began this external cleansing of Israel and he destroyed all the pagan altars and all the idols in Israel. But this 25-year-old king also started working on radical internal aspects of reform because you see, Hezekiah was a champion for the one true God. We don't have time to go into it in detail, but as Hezekiah was destroying idolatrous worship, he was at the same time restoring true worship. And the detail of that account is found in 2 Chronicles chapters 29 through 32. And in that portion of scripture, the chronicler relates how Hezekiah cleansed the temple, he reinstated the Passover and completely reorganized the priesthood, he purified and repaired the temple, he purged it of idols, he centralized the worship of God at the temple of Jerusalem, and even in an effort to bring back the spiritual unity in Israel, he invited the scattered tribes of Israel to take part in the Passover. We're told that many tribes laughed at him, but there were a few men from the tribes of Asher and Manasseh and Zebulun that did attend. And scripture says there had not been that much rejoicing since the days of Solomon. So here's your homework assignment. Go home today after you eat lunch and take a nap. Right? Read 2 Chronicles chapters 29 through 32 while it's still fresh in your mind. It's a great account. Let's not fail to meditate on the impact of all of this, okay? You know, I was told in the early days of my ministry, don't try to make changes too fast. Just go along with things for a while and then try to make changes. Now, being the mild-mannered, quiet man that I am, I tried this approach, but after a couple hours, I couldn't do it anymore. 
Okay, it didn't work for me. But I really love Hezekiah's approach here because we're told that he trusted the Lord from day one and he did what he had to do. And we see a record of that in 2 Kings 18.5 where it's recorded that he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah nor among those who were before him. And I think that's pretty high praise, don't you think? Now, had Hezekiah stopped here, he would still have an A-plus resume. But Hezekiah was not about to stop yet. There was one more critical action that needed to happen for spiritual reform, and it would be the mother load, it would be the creme de la creme of reform, and what Hezekiah did next defied all expectations. How many of you guys like show and tell? Come on, you love show and tell, you know it. You know, we all love show and tell, right? This is why I'm not in arts and crafts, okay? So I am going to, uh, rather than read this in the scriptures, I had the opportunity to share this with our Sparkies. So I'm going to come down here and ask Lucas Schroeder to come forward, who is one of my Sparkies. Where is he? Come on, Lucas. Come on up here. All right. Whoops, I forgot to get the microphone. It's up there somewhere. How you doing, Lucas? Good. Good. You all right? All right. Let's, uh, let's teach uh, the congregation a little bit about Bible lessons, should we? Yeah. Okay, and you know, I used to call kids up all the time. I think it's great, isn't it, to have kids up here? Okay, so what, it, what is this here? What am I holding here? A snake. A snake on a pole, right? And why did Moses make this snake on a pole? So that they, so the people that got bitten by the snakes, they would come back to life. So the people got bitten by a snake would come back, well, they wouldn't die in the first place, right? Yeah. Yeah, they would come back to life. But after time, what happened? They started, they started worshiping it. They started worshiping it, and because they started worshiping it, what did King Hezekiah do? He broke it. Would you like to be King Hezekiah today? Yeah. Okay. Here. Listen, folks, I come prepared. Put those on. <laughs> Favorite toy of a young boy. All right. So now don't hit my hands, okay? Because <laughs> I have to turn my pages, okay? Maybe we should just lay it down. Okay, show me what he did. All right. Good. There you go. Okay. Thank you, buddy. Nice job. Here, you can keep that, all right? All right. You love show and tell. You know it. We all like that. So now I don't have to read that, right? Everybody get that? Okay. Pass my notes there. You know, of this act, G. Campbell Morgan rightly said, one of the first acts of the reign of this new king was the smashing of fragments, one of the most valuable and historic relics in the kingdom. And I want you, beloved, to see the significance of this because this memorial was a national treasure. Okay, this could have gone into the Israeli Smithsonian Institute. And we all know the story, and it's recorded back in Numbers 21, verses 1 through 9. And Lucas showed us all about that, so we're not going to read that because you guys know the story now. But if there ever was a wonderful memorial, it was this. And, you know, think of how positive this memorial could have stayed because generation after generation had the ability to recount how their ancestors, when they were bitten by a snake, could gaze upon the pole and live. And they could have recounted to their children how faith and obedience to God brings life to those who trust in Him. Of course, we know that it wasn't the pole that saved people's lives. It was their repentance for sinning against God and their looking to Him again in obedience and faith to save them. But what a timeless lesson for God's people. And not only that, but we know that Jesus himself referenced this in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, where we read, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Unfortunately and tragically, this lesson was soon lost because we now come to the time of King Hezekiah. And by this time, the Israelites had retained this memorial for over 800 years. Not only was this a relic of high antiquity, it was authentic. Listen, this thing was the very bronze serpent that Moses made. 
And the standard was the very standard that Moses used to put the serpent on. And there would not have been a Jewish person alive at that time that didn't know about this artifact. But Hezekiah, without hesitation, smashed it. Now, how do you think that went over? You know, if destroying the revered idols of everyday life required courage, how much more courage would it have taken to destroy this sacred serpent, this national treasure of antiquity? You know, that would be akin to you and I walking into St. Peter's Basilica and smashing all of the idols and objects of veneration. Or walking into the Smithsonian Institute and smashing every pagan religious artifact that was on display. Or even worse, walking into Pastor Steve's office and smashing all of his San Francisco giant memorabilia. <laughs> that would put us in jail. Now let's understand, there was no problem with the artifact itself. The problem was that over the years, the Israelites had turned this national symbol into a savior. And the symbol was called Nehushtan, which means piece of brass. And they had made it an idol, and they were burning incense to it, and they were now trusting in what was a means for deliverance, rather than trusting in the Lord who ordained that means. What originally had been a very good thing had now been deified and worshipped. It had become nothing more than a worthless idol. Now you might think, well, those ancients, you know, they weren't too smart anyway. I mean, they were always falling into idolatry, so what's the big deal? Let me ask you this. Do you think we're any better 2,700 years later? No. In fact, I would say maybe we're worse. How many of you remember Our Lady of Clearwater? Let me uh, refresh your memory. Back in December of 1996, rainbow swirls from a broken sprinkler had formed the shape of what many believed to be the Virgin Mary. And it was on the glass outside the Seminole Finance Corporation. Soon there was a shrine that was set up at the site, and in the following weeks, over 600,000 people came to this shrine. They brought flowers, they lit candles, they worshipped the image. One couple got married there. Apparently in 2004, a troubled young Hezekiah took a slingshot and ball bearings and he busted the upper glass. I'm sure he was arrested. This one I really love. In the same year, a Nashville coffee shop customer said that he had a cinnamon roll that resembled Mother Teresa. So the owner shellacked the roll and thousands came to the coffee shop to see it. So if you have a small business, get yourself a roll, paint a picture on it, shellac it, and tell people you got it. Then there was the major controversy over the Shroud of Turin. Many claimed that this was the actual burial cloth that Jesus was wrapped in, in the tomb. Forensic scientists believe that it was artificially created. But you know what? Either way, whether it really is or isn't, I'm really glad that we don't know. Because if we knew it was, what do you think people would do? They would worship it. And many who see it in Italy, in Turin, in Italy, do worship it. And each of these, beloved, are examples of the institutions of our day. And I think there are lessons for us to learn here because we are bombarded daily by temptations that can easily lead us into idolatry. And an idol is anything that's more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and mind more than God, anything you seek to give yourself something that only God can give you. And in our synchronistic, pluralistic society, we know that society is constantly pushing to subordinate and distort the gospel, saying there are other means to God, that what's good for you spiritually may not be good for me. And many believers are quite comfortable to stay silent and coexist with rather than call out pagan idolatry. And often these shifts in religion and culture are so subtle, we don't even know that they're pulling us away from God. And we begin to give wholehearted time and attention to lesser things. Let me give you three things that I think are often plaguing to us as Americans. Maybe you're plagued by these how often do we worship at the altar of self? We're a self-obsessed people, amen? 
And isn't it true that although we know we exist to glorify God, we usually filter everything through the lens of how it might affect us? How often do we fail to think about how our lives affect Christ and His honor? We find it quite natural to look out for number one, don't we? And that is the idol of self. Secondly, how often do we worship at the altar of security? Instead of relying upon our security in Christ, we attempt to fulfill our own needs and our own strength, and we feel we have to build fortress walls around us because, well, God is okay, but... We say we trust God, but when careers are threatened, when relationships end, when unexpected illnesses arise, oftentimes panic overshadows unshakable faith. And we take matters into our own hands. How often do we worship at the altar of approval? God longs to draw us closer to himself and to one another in unity and fellowship. But the problem arises when we place our desire to be liked above our relationship with God. And we fear more of what others think than what God thinks. And thus we worship at the altar of approval. You know, when it came to the spiritual restoration of Israel, of Judah, Hezekiah had courageous convictions. When he smashed the idols, even to the point of smashing a national treasure, he wasn't worried about self, believe you me. He was worried about God's reputation and not his own. He wasn't worried about security. We're told in verses 7 and 8 of 2 Kings 18 that Hezekiah defied the king of Assyria. Listen, Assyria was mighty enough to completely conquer the northern kingdom of Israel and probably could have squished Judah like a bug. And they did threaten Judah, but Hezekiah did not run to the Egyptians for help. He trusted in the Lord God to protect the nation. And unlike his father Ahaz, Hezekiah shook off the yoke of subjugation and tribute to Assyria that had lasted for so many years. We're also told that like David, he battled the Philistines, an aggressive enemy of Israel, and beat them back as far as Gaza. He wasn't worried about security. He also didn't seek the approval of men. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, and in verse 6 we see a summary of where his heart was at. We read, therefore, he clung to the Lord, he did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments which the Lord had commanded Moses. I really believe, beloved, that today we need more courage in the church today. Sometimes I think we've become too silent, we've become too timid. Sometimes we're afraid to confront sin. Sometimes it's so much easier, isn't it, to go along with the status quo? We don't take stands that might be costly. Too often we stay silent when we have opportunities to stand for what we believe. You know, I was reminded again as I read for this message in Acts chapter 4 where we see the rulers and the priests and the elders and and the scribes commanding Peter and John do not speak and do not teach again in the name of Jesus and they answered in verse 19 and we read this but Peter and John answered and said to them whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God you be the judge for we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard We often fail then to notice their petition to God, which we find down in verse 29. And now they said, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. When persecution came, it strengthened their resolve. Hezekiah has left us a lasting legacy of one who has courageous convictions. And I think there are many lessons for the contemporary church that we can learn from this ancient king. But as I mentioned earlier, the best of men are men at best. And as we read the accounts of the men and women in Scripture, one thing becomes very clear. God is not a respecter of persons. Amen? And God exposes the shortcomings as well as the successes of people. And Hezekiah is no exception. So having seen the courageous convictions of Hezekiah, let's look now for a moment at the calculated compromises that often plagued him. And these accounts are found in 2 Kings 18, 13 through 2 Kings chapter 20. 
Now, if the opening summary of Hezekiah's royal accomplishments gives the impression that his life was perfect, then what is about to follow quickly dispels that. But nevertheless, we can learn a lot from Hezekiah's failures. And the first thing we want to learn, or we will see, is that neither our faith nor our good works will protect us from the trials and the temptations of life. In spite of what's said, this side of glory, you are not living your best life now. And like Hezekiah, none of us are immune from suffering, nor are we inoculated from sin. In select passages that I mentioned, we see really two calculated compromises that Hezekiah made. We also see the consequences of those actions. And as I said, for the sake of time, we'll look at these in summary fashion. But the first compromise is recorded in 2 Kings 18, 13 through 1937. And what we see there is in Hezekiah's 14th year as king of Judah, the inevitable happened that Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, came up against Judah. And he now by this time had captured all the fortified cities in Judah and had come as far as Lachish, which was only 30 miles from Jerusalem. So now things, as far as war, were getting incredibly serious because he was ready to lay siege to Jerusalem. And rather than trust God, Hezekiah panicked. And we understand this, don't we? How many of you have failed when you thought you'd succeed? Anybody here? When you thought you had it all together, but you got to that point and it just put you over the edge. Hezekiah snapped. And he panicked. And he thought, you know what? God didn't protect Israel in the north, and now I've got Sennacherib kind of standing at my doorstep ready to lay siege, so obviously God's not interested in helping us out either, so I've got to do something. And we notice what he did, chapter 18, notice verses 13 through 16. It says, Now in the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them, And then Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. So the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. Hezekiah gave him all the silver which was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. And at that time, Hezekiah cut off the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. You know, I thought Hezekiah had to have a twin that was named just like him because this can't be the same guy. But no doubt seeing the northern kingdom defeated, he assumed God wasn't going to intervene. He felt he had to do something. Of course, we would never do this, right? We never, never, ever have our wills over the Lord's will. And he gave away treasure. And this unbelievable lapse in judgment just emboldened Sennacherib all the more. And he taunted the Israelites, he struck fear into them, he mocked them. And we learn that when we feed evil, it grows, and when we tolerate evil, it consumes us. We cannot reconcile with evil, beloved. It just is not going to work. And understand that Satan's strategy is often to demoralize us, to drive us to despair, to shake our faith, to weaken us. And I think Hezekiah is living proof how fast that can happen. You know, some of the worriest, most difficult falls that I've had have been after the greatest victories. How many of you have felt that? You get a great blessing from God and you're on the mountaintop and you don't watch your, your flank and wham. It doesn't take long, does it, to compromise. It doesn't take long to fall. We have to be careful. And that's exactly what happened here to Hezekiah. Beware of demonic logic too. Listen, Satan does not want you to fight. He wants you to give up. Just give up. And you know, one little compromise can open the floodgates to greater compromise. You know, you bend one little corner at work and do something you shouldn't, and then before you know it, you're asked to compromise very greatly. You get involved in vulgar conversations with people, and they expect that that's who you are, and they expect more vulgarity. 
You relax moral convictions. You think, well, listen, I'm only going to go this far. This will just be a little, little lapse, and that can turn into a huge moral failure. Just like that. Now, in this particular case, Hezekiah came around. He turned to the Lord. He solicited the help of Isaiah the prophet to pray for him. And we read about this in 2 Kings 19, 6 and 7. So let's look there. It says, Isaiah then said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. They blasphemed God as well. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. So we see here that Hezekiah solicited the Lord. He finally repented. He did what was right. He sought the counsel of Isaiah. The Lord heard his prayer. And we see the final outcome of this in 2 Kings 19, verses 32 through 37. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he will not come to this city or shoot an arrow there, and he will not come before it with a shield or throw up a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, by the same he will return." And he shall not come to this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city and save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men rose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived in Nineveh. It came about as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrach, his god, that Adramelech and Sharezer killed him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esherhaddon, his son, became king in his place. So we see that he did get great victory here, and you would think that this would have had a great impact on him to come back to the Lord. But unfortunately, there was one more moral failure that Hezekiah had, and this time it had permanent consequences. We find that actually in 2 Kings chapter 20. For the sake of time, I'm going to summarize this, but in chapter 20, we see that Hezekiah became mortally ill. And he was very scared and he prayed to the Lord, Lord, remember that I walked with you in truth and with a whole heart. And again, we hear that God heard his prayer and God said that I'm going to give you 15 more years of life. So instead of dying at 39 years old, Hezekiah actually lived until 54 years old. And we read about after that, that God not only healed him, gave him another 15 years, but said, I'm also going to continue to protect you from the Assyrians so you will not have to worry. Now you would think that this would draw Hezekiah close to the Lord, that he would be renewed in faith, but not so. And once again, Hezekiah lost perspective. And this is how fast it can happen. So Hezekiah considered, we're told, that God had healed him from a mortal illness, that he had promised to defend the city from the Assyrians, that he had great military victories and how he had amassed great wealth. Guess what? It all went to his head. Hey, man, I'm untouchable. Yeah, you want to hear my testimony? Man, I've got God fighting for me all over the place. And he got full of himself again. And Satan was right there to tempt him. And in 2 Chronicles 32, verse 31, we're told that God this time left him alone for the purpose of testing him. So what happened? I'll just recount the story. We're told that one of the sons of the king of Babylon sent letters and a present to King Hezekiah saying, oh, we're so glad that you're healed and isn't that wonderful and we'd like to come for a visit. And that went to his head and Hezekiah thought, wow, I'm flattered. They want to come and see me. So he was suffering the sin of complacency. So the Babylonians decided to pay Hezekiah a visit, but it wasn't a social call. They, like the Judeans, were feeling pressure from Assyria and they wanted an ally. And Philip Riken sums it up this way. He says, The temptation for Hezekiah was to hedge his bet that God would save him from Assyria by making friends with the Babylonians and joining their rebellion. So what did he do? He tried to do everything he could to impress them. And he took them into the storehouses of Israel and he showed them all the treasures of Israel. And when Isaiah confronted him and he said, what did you do, Hezekiah? Hezekiah said, I showed him everything. I showed him everything that there was there. And then we read 
that Isaiah came to Hezekiah and said, because you have done this, you are going to have all of your treasure carried away and Judah will be taken into captivity. So what happened was is that Isaiah then prophesied that someday they would be overrun and taken into what we know as the Babylonian captivity. Now, after Isaiah prophesied that the Babylonians would conquer Judah and carry away this treasure, you would have thought that Hezekiah would have been horrified. You would have thought he would drop to his knees and said, this is awful. But pride goes before the fall, doesn't it? And pride is a deadly sin, and it keeps your focus squarely on yourself. I mean, you would think after such devastating news that you're going to be overrun that he would have dropped to his knees and prayed for repentance or petitioned on behalf of the nation for deliverance. You would think that Hezekiah might have said, Lord, we've come so far. We've changed so much. We've righted so many wrongs. I mean, if we had a prophet in that sense today like Isaiah who said that there is impending doom coming, would you just be callous about it and just... How many of you would want to drop to your knees in prayer? But astoundingly, there was no prayer offered to God, just a display of selfish resignation. And here we get a window into the pride and selfishness that gripped the king's heart. You see, outwardly, when Hezekiah heard this news of gloom and doom and destruction, notice what he said in 2 Kings 20 at the beginning of verse 19. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, Well, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. Now, if you just stop there, it might leave you wondering. The word of the Lord, well, of course the word of the Lord is good, right? What do you think he was trying to do here? Just placate Isaiah. But notice the end of verse 19. And I love what it says here. For he thought, in other words, he didn't say this to Isaiah, for he thought, it is not so if there will be peace and truth in my days. In other words, who cares what happens as long as I don't have to see it? I mean, who cares what happens? I, I can't worry about the future. That's their problem. And it's almost unbelievable that he would take this attitude of complacency. But don't we often take the sin of complacency? How worried are we about future generations and their stand for Christ? And how much are we investing in generations that we pray go far farther than we go? You know, it didn't take long for Judah to suffer the consequences of this thinking. When Hezekiah died, his son Manasseh became king, and we're told of Manasseh that he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he brought back all the abominations that Israel suffered before. So Hezekiah was a one and done. You know, one of the greatest pains that I suffered in my years of ministry, especially when I was in rural areas ministering, was going by countless number of churches that were now antique shops or stores or houses. And I often thought to myself, what happened? What happened with the last generation of believers in this place that they just gave it up? Obviously, Hezekiah didn't devote much time to godly parenting. Amen? Amen? Amen. And eventually, the Israelites were led into captivity. So we see that Hezekiah's reign was far from mistake-free. But in spite of all this, the scriptures recount his life, and his epitaph is far more positive than negative. And, you know, for his life and for what he accomplished, I think that his convictions stand as a testimony to all believers through the ages as to what God can do when hearts and wills are surrendered to him. And I think Hezekiah's compromises warn us how to avoid serious compromises that seek to entangle us and how fast that can happen if our guard is not up. You know, I often wonder how different the church might look today if we all had the courage and conviction of Hezekiah. 
And I don't say this, beloved, to lament. I say this so that we get serious about following God in areas where we may be complacent. Listen, praise God for the conviction and the victories that you've had in Christ. That's, that's wonderful. That's fantastic. And we've all had those, and, and praise the Lord for that. But remember that your success is not final. Every day you wake up is a blank slate, amen? And every day you wake up, you are in spiritual warfare. So we cannot afford to rest on the laurels of the past. We need to fight the good fight every single day. But then let me encourage you likewise that failure is not fatal. Anybody here never failed? If you raise your hand, I'm going to say you failed already because you're lying. So, We've all failed, haven't we? We've all compromised. Every single one of us have done that. So what do we do? We have the courage to get up, dust yourself off, and keep going. Run the race. Don't be afraid to stand for your faith. Serve the Lord in all you do. Listen, get rid of the bronze serpents in your life. Remove the Nehushtans. Remove what is getting in the way of true worship and devotion in your life. Grasp the power of prayer. Guard against pride. Guard your legacy. Pour into those that are coming behind you. Train your children up in the way they should go. Listen, these are all lessons that we learn along with many more from the life of this ancient king. And my prayer always for us at Lakeside is that we would be found faithful until the return of the King of Kings who will usher in His kingdom forever. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we come before you to ask that you strengthen our convictions. Lord, we ask you to melt our hearts to such an extent that we would tenaciously guard the truth of your word, the integrity of worship. Father, we pray that you would give us the courage and boldness to trust in the power of your might and your righteousness. And Lord, help us to remember the power of your love so that we would commit ourselves to you without reservation, no matter what the cost. And help us, Lord, we pray, to live as trophies of Christ's victory at Calvary and and to walk in obedience to you. And Lord, I pray that even in the midst of our stumblings and even in the midst of our failures and our imperfections, that, Lord, you would uphold us, that you would strengthen us and keep us pressing forward in the faith. And we ask it for the fame of your name, for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.